One of the questions that we often grapple with in the Christian life is it's the question of pain that is associated with obedience to God. What I'm talking about is when we've been obedient to God, when we've done the right thing, um, why is it that often we have to endure trials? Now, many of you have been there. You've been obedient to God in some way in your life, and perhaps you were surprised by the trial that that obedience sort of provoked in your life. And sometimes in those situations, we, we wonder where God is. We like to think that obeying God and doing the right thing always leads to favorable circumstances. And yet you and I both know that in reality, the opposite is often the case. I read where someone once asked C.S. Lewis about why the righteous have to suffer. And I love how he replied. Uh, He said, why shouldn't the righteous suffer? Because they're the only ones who can handle it. We understand that we have a Savior, and the road for our Savior was marked with suffering. And the same thing is true for us as believers. As we seek to follow Christ in a fallen world, Uh, there will be suffering for the sake of our faith. Our beliefs, our value system, uh, this is something that often is uh, persecuted by an unbelieving world, a world that's dominated by the devil, this fallen world system that he's behind. And yet the furnace that often ensues from obedient living as a disciple of Jesus, God uses the furnace often to reveal our character to us and to refine us. So if you feel like you're in a furnace in life of, of whatever, for whatever reason, then know that it is the purpose and the intention of our God to use that uh, to refine you. So Daniel chapter 3 is where I want you to turn if you've got your Bible there with you. We've been in a study of the book of Daniel over the last several weeks. And within Daniel chapter 3, we find the remarkable story of the three Hebrew young men who stood firm in their faith in Babylon. And uh, you and I know it as the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their refusal to bow down to a wicked king's idolatrous image. And as a result of their obedience to God... The Bible says that they were cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And yet, as this passage reveals, the Lord was with them in the midst of the fire, and God delivered them by his mighty power. And so the wonderful truth that we learn in this passage is that our God is the one who delivers his people. And aren't you grateful for that truth as a believer in Jesus Christ? Now, often we come to a passage like this, and if we're not careful, we can think, well, it's God's intention to deliver us from every temporary, momentary furnace that we find ourselves in in life. And yet the opposite is often true. What we read in this passage is a miraculous deliverance as God manifests his presence with these three Hebrew young men in the midst of the fire, delivers them from the fire. The flames of the fire doesn't touch their bodies. And yet we know that many believers down through history uh, have perhaps lost their life for the cause of Christ, persecution, and that kind of thing. 
And yet the main emphasis of this text is that God is with us in the midst of life's fire. And isn't that a wonderful promise? That no matter the circumstance, no matter, no matter the situation we find ourselves in, how, however painful it may be, our God is Emmanuel, God with us. And so he's not always promised to spare us from difficulty, but he's promised to be with us no matter the pain and no matter the difficulty. So if you've got your Bible there with me, Daniel chapter 3, um, I, I want to read this passage. I, I want you to look at verse 1. I just want to read through the text as best as I can, as quickly as I can. Uh, but the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Notice the repetition in these verses. All right? It, it, you see these phrases and words that are repeated over and over again, almost sounding redundant. Know that the, it's for the sake of emphasis. It's the intention of the author to drive home this point that this is an act of high treason against the God of heaven. This is an act of idolatry. A wicked act of idolatry as Nebuchadnezzar has erected this image and he's commanding his empire to worship the image. The fourth verse says that the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. 
So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now notice that question there that he asked at the end of verse 15. Who is this God? Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Now, let me tell you, Nebuchadnezzar should have known the answer to that question. Because more than 10 years earlier in his life, chapter 2 says that he had had a dream, a dream that involved an image that he saw made up of multiple types of metals. The head was made of gold. Um, the arms, chest made of silver. The belly uh, and thighs of bronze. The legs of iron. The feet, iron and clay mixed together. Daniel is the servant of the Most High God. He comes along, he tells the king the dream, he offers the interpretation to the dream and gives glory to the God of heaven. In fact, look back at chapter 2, verse 47 there in your Bible for just a second. After Daniel offers the interpretation, the king answers and says to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. So here you have Nebuchadnezzar had made the admission that the God of the Hebrews is God of gods, Lord of lords, God of kings. And here in chapter 3, 10 years later or more, he's asking this question out of his arrogance and his pride. Who is the God who's able to deliver you out of my hands? Now listen, Nebuchadnezzar had had a religious experience at the end of chapter 2. But it was a religious experience and nothing more. It did not lead to genuine life change. And I want you to listen to me very carefully. It is all too possible for you to be impressed by the truth and not be changed by the truth. It's easy for you to acknowledge the fact that there is a God to whom you're accountable and not be changed by this God. It's possible for you to be interested in the gospel, but not changed by the power of the gospel. You can be a religious person and not a righteous person. So there's been no change inwardly in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He thinks he's God. He thinks he's in control. It's his pride that's on display here in this story. Who is this God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now look at verse 16. I love how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Notice the emphasis there on the fact that the king binds these men with cords before he has them thrown into the oven. Verse 24 says that King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they gathered together. They saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Can't you just imagine that scene in your mind's eye? As all these people are just dumbfounded and they're poking and they're prodding and they're looking around at these guys and they're like, they don't even smell like smoke, y'all. And I think that might be the biggest miracle of all. You ever had just a little fire in your backyard, a little fire pit and roast marshmallows with your kids on a Friday night? It takes three days to get the smell of smoke out of your clothes. They're thrown into an oven and there's not even a hint of smoke. Not one single hair of their head had been singed. The 28th verse says that Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I want to speak from this subject once more when faith is under fire. What do you do as a believer, as a worshiper of the one true God, when your faith is under fire, especially in a world of unbelief? Now, we've already examined uh, in a previous time the first seven verses of this chapter. And in the first seven verses of the chapter, we're given the context for the story. Nebuchadnezzar had set up an image on the plain of Babylon. And he commanded that everyone in his empire worship this image. He intended for this image to kind of be a rallying point for his entire empire. Uh, Something that uh, he intended to sort of bring everyone together. So the command goes out. uh, He gathers together all government leaders and uh, various officials from different levels of society. They gather on the plain of Dura around the image, and the king gives the command for everyone to bow down and worship. Those who refuse to worship are told 
that they would be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, an oven of sorts. And so really from the first seven verses, I've already pointed out to you how the furnace is something that ought to be expected on the part of God's people. Expecting the furnace uh, in a world that is hostile to uh, the worship of the one true God, a world that's in rebellion to its creator, those who are the people of God will experience the heat for their faith. The world around us has images that it constructs all of the time, ideologies that it tells us we need to embrace, we need to go along with the crowd, but God's people have a different value system. God's people have a different motive behind the way that they live their life. God's people worship the one true God and bring glory to him and make much of Jesus. And the world doesn't understand that, and often because we refuse to go around and embrace the world's images and ideologies, it means a furnace for the people of God. And so I made this point that believers ought to expect the furnace as we live in a world that's antagonistic toward our faith. Now, having said all of that, I want to point out a second thing from this chapter. And notice that it involves experiencing the furnace. The furnace is something to be expected in life, but the furnace is also something that will be experienced. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego learned this firsthand. Men who refuse to go along with the crowd often gain a reputation. And that's what happens with these guys. You'll notice down in verse number eight, uh, we're told that certain Chaldeans come forward and they maliciously accuse the Jews. In fact, they they mention that a couple of times. Uh, There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of Babylon. They're singled out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The nature of their accusation is seen there in verse number 12. These Jews, O king, these worshipers of the one true, they pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods, neither do they worship the image that you've set up. Now keep in mind, everybody else had gathered around. They were standing before the image. When the music began to play, they fell before the image. They worshiped the image. They bowed down as they were told, except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Which, by the way, the fact that thousands of people do the same thing doesn't make it right. The fact that thousands of people are prepared to bow down before an image simply because it's the popular thing to do, it does not make it right. And so I find here really a picture uh, that illustrates the lostness of humanity. It's easy to get swept up with the crowd. And folks, when has the crowd ever been right about anything? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in the minority. All of this is going on in the culture around them. But this text reminds us that even in the midst of such chaos, God always has his own. (laughs) You remember in the church we used to talk about remnant theology? You know what's meant by that phrase, the remnant? God always has a remnant. This idea through redemptive history, we look back through the Bible and we see that no matter how dark the times were, no matter how chaotic the times were, no matter how the culture seemed to be swept up with unbelief, carried away with immoral living, God always had a remnant of his people that he preserved for himself in that society. Kind of reminds me of the prophet Elijah. 
You know, Elijah was standing against Baal worship in Israel, and he had been a fierce advocate for the worship of the one true God. Elijah felt like he was the only one standing. Elijah felt the heat of the furnace. Elijah experienced his own bout with depression. God takes him to Mount Horeb, puts him in a cave. Uh, Elijah's having a pity party, and he says something to God along these lines. He says, God, um, they've slaughtered your prophets. They've gone after Baal. I'm the only one left alive who's serving you. And God has to speak into his life through a still small voice after getting Elijah's attention. He says, let me tell you something, big boy. You just think you're the only one serving me, but I have reserved for myself 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You may not know who they are, but I know who they are. Folks, God always has a remnant of his people. And the same thing's true in culture today. No matter how dark the times around us may get, no matter how difficult it may be to be a worshiper of God and a follower of Jesus in society, God has seen to it that he will always preserve and keep a remnant for himself and for his glory. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we might could say they're nonconformists. They're living as aliens in a strange world. They don't march to the same drumbeat as Babylon. They're not consumed with the same agenda as Babylon. They're not willing to go along with the crowd in Babylon simply because they know God in a personal and saving way. And so you notice the refusal then that they're going to give the king as they're called to stand on the carpet before him. Verse 13 says that Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. He flies into a furious rage, commanding that these guys be brought to stand before him. He asks them questions. Guys, I'm hearing that you've not bowed before the image. Is this true? I'm going to give you one more chance. When you hear the sound of the music, you can go along with everybody else, and you can fall down and worship the image just as I've commanded everyone to do. Who's the God who's going to be able to deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> well, he's about to find out. I love how these guys respond. Verse 16, they answered and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> I love that. It just simply is their way of saying, we don't have to defend ourselves on this issue. We're not out to make a name for ourselves. We're not trying to be ugly. We simply want you to know that if we're thrown into the furnace, the God we serve is able to rescue us from its power. And he it is who will rescue us from your hand. But if he does not, and that's a big if, by the way, if he does not rescue us, we want you to know that we're not going to serve your gods and we're still not going to bow before your image. Now, sometimes I think we're so familiar with this story that we miss this part. We miss this part because, look, they're not expecting a miracle. They're not placing their confidence in the miraculous. They're placing all of their confidence in God. They're fully aware of the consequences of what their stand for their faith is going to lead. They know it's going to lead to the furnace, and they know what furnaces do to people. But no matter the pain, no matter what it might mean for their lives and the end of their lives, they refuse to bow down because they're devoted to the worship of God. They're not looking for a fight. Oh, but they're not going to back down from one either when it's staring them in the face. 
And let me tell you, they had already made up their mind that they were not going to compromise. Their minds were made up long before they were called to stand before Nebuchadnezzar. And something else that they don't do, they don't waste their time trying to tear down the image itself. (laughs) They're not ugly. They simply refuse to bow down. Their confidence and their faith is in God, and they're not going to compromise it no matter what. And let me tell you, this this is to be the answer of the people of God, especially in times like these. Not to try to avoid the furnace for the sake of our faith. Not to try to dismantle the images. Not to try to play the world's game using the world's tactics. But rather we place all of our hope in the one true God and in the truth and the power of his word. I love what Alistair Begg has said about this text. He said, tearing down the monument would have been a futile agenda for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then he gets specific and makes some application. He says, for the last several years in the church, we've wasted our time trying to dismantle the monuments. What's he talking about? He's talking about the tendency for the church to want to get sidetracked with so many different issues. Wanting to get sidetracked with so many social causes and social issues that takes us away from the simple proclamation of the gospel. Because the power, folks, it's not in so much of our social action and trying to tear down the monuments of the world, but it's in the declaration of the word of the living God that we've been entrusted with. The gospel, the message of hope, the message of reconciliation. This is the power for the church. So Alistair Begg says they're not trying to tear down the monument. They're not refusing to go into the furnace. Listen to this, not realizing, often the church, we refuse to want to go into the furnace, not realizing that it will be in the furnace that Christ will manifest himself. We're constantly trying to keep the furnace away from us because we assume that if the church were ever to go into the furnace, it would be the end of the church. It may well be that the only way God is going to bring forth his church as gold in these times is for his church to go through the furnace. The very things we least desire are the very things we most need, and the things that we run from are the things that might make us. And I say, amen, Alistair Begg. Wow. So they're not running from the furnace. They know what the cost is for their obedience, but you see, the thing is, all of their hope and all of their confidence is in their God, who is mighty to save Well, this provokes a reaction from Nebuchadnezzar. He flies into a rage, verse 19, filled with fury. The expression of his face is changed against these men, and he orders the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. (laughs) In the wintertime, I go visit my grandmother. She's got a wood stove in her living room, hotter than the blazes, let me tell you, in the middle of the wintertime. She keeps that thing stoked. Seven times hotter than it ought to be heated, right? It's just the biblical text. It's the way of just emphasizing the fact that they got the furnace as hot as they could get the furnace. The king orders some of his men to bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the furnace. They bound them in what they were wearing. They threw them into the oven Because the furnace was so hot, so overheated, the text says that the men who threw them into the flames were consumed by the flames. That's a hot fire. 
That is a blazing hot furnace. And the, the emphasis in the text is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell bound into the furnace. But notice the contrasts in this text. Here you have the king who's marked by fury. The men of God are marked by faith and firmness. The king's men obey the order of the king, and they're the ones who are consumed by the flames. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego defy the king's order in obedience to the God of heaven, and they're the ones who were delivered in the midst of the, fur the furnace. It's a reminder that though the world around us may threaten believers, though the devil may persecute believers, it is Satan and his system that ultimately is on the losing end of the deal. The only thing in this text that gets consumed by the flames of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace are the things that belong to Nebuchadnezzar. His men and the cords with which he bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isn't that interesting? So it's a fitting illustration that the judgment of God is decreed upon a world of unbelief, a world of sin, a world of rebellion. Well, God's men, God is the one who's going to deliver them. So expecting the furnace, experiencing the furnace, notice third, exiting the furnace. There's a remarkable thing that happens. Verse 24, when the king looks into the furnace, he, he, he says, listen, I thought we threw three guys in here who were bound, but I'm looking in and I see four men unbound walking around and the fourth man himself looks like someone I've never seen before. He, he, looks, he looks like a son of the gods. I, I like how the King James translates it. He looks like the son of God. Literally, uh, the text says in the original language, a son of the gods. These Chaldeans didn't have any concept of the triune nature of God. They had no understanding of the second person of the Trinity. They had no understanding of the deity of Christ, the son of God. Nebuchadnezzar is just simply describing what he saw when he looked into the furnace. I see a fourth man in the fire with these guys, and he looks like someone I've never seen before. The scholars are, the jury's out of whether this is simply an angel or whether this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. I tend to believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself in the Old Testament. We call these theophanies or Christophanies. Ever so often as you read through the Old Testament, you'll come across a section of scripture where uh, reference is made to the angel of the Lord who appears. Now, there's certain times when the angel of the Lord is simply an angel, a created being who's a messenger on God's behalf. But then there are other times when it says the angel of the Lord, and then that messenger speaks, and it's clear that he's speaking with divine authority. It's clear that this is, this is God himself manifesting himself in a powerful way. <laughs> I believe that's what's happening here in this passage. Listen, folks, I believe this is Christ who's standing in the fire with his own. And I believe that from this we can gather the wonderful truth that no matter when we're faced with furnaces in life, praise be to God that our God is Emmanuel, God with us. And because of Christ and because of the cross and because of his resurrection and because of the gift of his spirit, 
He is now God in us who's come to take up residence inside the believer, which means you will never encounter a furnace in life where he's not there with you and in you and in the furnace with you. Wow. So these guys have been cast bound into the fire, but the fire is what burns their bonds. Now think about it. The flames don't touch their clothes. The flames don't touch their hair. It doesn't touch their hair. They don't even smell like smoke. The only thing that is burnt away are the Babylonian bonds with which they had been tied up. You don't think God uses the furnaces of life to burn away the unnecessary trappings of life? God doesn't use the furnace to burn away the unnecessary in my life and in your life. You better believe he does. It's often in the furnace that my faith is refined. And everything that's unnecessary, worldly, unspiritual, not of Christ, that which is a product of this world's thinking. It's the furnaces that God uses to burn those kinds of things away in my life so that he might refine my faith as gold. So look at what the king says. He looks on and he says, guys, y'all come out of the fire. And then he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He acknowledges the fact that these guys trusted in God, they despised the king's command, and they yielded up their bodies rather than worship and serve any god but their own. That's three remarkable statements right there that Nebuchadnezzar makes about the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The first, they trusted in the Lord. All of their confidence was in the Lord. They set aside the king's command. They realized that there was a higher authority that they were accountable to than Nebuchadnezzar. And remarkably, Nebuchadnezzar sees how they have yielded up their bodies rather than serve dead idols. The nature of their obedience to God was such that they yielded up their bodies. Now think about what that means. It means that instead of being concerned about their own self-preservation... They yielded up their body as an act of devotion to God. They took no thought for their life. The one consuming passion of their heart was obedience to God. Can I just ask this question this morning? Since when did we become so concerned about preserving our lives in the church? Are you listening to me? We're possessors of eternal life. No matter what the world throws at us, as those who've placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we're inheritors of eternal life. We're winners either way, y'all. Therefore, we're among those who ought to yield up our bodies in obedience because of what Christ has done for us. That's why Paul says what he does in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... Because Christ has been so merciful. Because Christ yielded up his body in obedience to the Father's will and was nailed to a cross in your place for your sin. I appeal to you on the mercies of Christ. Present your bodies to God as living sacrifices. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So therefore glorify God. Where? 
in your body? It's an appropriate question to ask. Have you yielded over your body, your mind, your spirit, all of you? Are you yielded in total obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is obedience something that's merely theoretical for you? Something merely on paper? You know, Christian devotion is such that in the word of Isaac Watts, sees the love of God in Christ so amazing, so divine, that it demands my soul, my life, my all. <laughs> when I survey the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Wow. So these men yield their bodies up knowing the consequences of obedience, but all of their hope and all of their love and all of their confidence is in the God to deliver. And then Nebuchadnezzar makes a statement there. Let me just wrap this up. Verse 29, look at what he says. He says, there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. Now remember the question that he's raised earlier in verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? The answer to his question is found in the king's own mouth. What he witnesses, because of their devotion, because of their witness, he's now able to say, there is no other God who's able to deliver in such a way. Oh, that our lives would cause such a statement be made in the mouths of those who take notice of us. <laughs> Isn't that a remarkable statement? as the result of faithful men in a fiery furnace with a God who is true to his word, Nebuchadnezzar is able to catch a glimpse of who this God really is. An unbeliever making a statement about the God of these Hebrews. The world around us comes along and says, what God can save you? What God do you put your hope in? Pluralism says there's a lot of gods. Who are you to think that yours is any special than anybody? Uh, uh, materialism says, don't worry about the truth of God. Just, just put all of your confidence in your stuff. Secularism says, science is the answer for everything in life. Atheism says, there is no God. What God can deliver you? That's what the world around us is constantly saying. But folks, they will never be able to say what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 29 until they see some believers who are willing to walk through the furnace in obedience for Christ's sake. They will never be able to say, no God can save like this until they observe some faithful men and women walking in and through the fiery furnaces of life. If for no other reason, then our God is our treasure. And Christ is worthy of our worship. Samuel Rutherford was one of the Puritans who lived in the 1600s. He was a pastor and he was exiled because of his bold stand, his faith. He was separated from his congregation and he wrote a series of letters. And the letters that he wrote, his scattered congregation while he was in exile, are now bound in a, in a, in a classic work called the, the Letters of Samuel Rutherford. 
But one of the things that Samuel Rutherford talked about was the hammer, the file, and the furnace. He said that believers ought to praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. A.W. Tozer picked up on that and sort of elaborated on what Rutherford meant. And he said the hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had feeling and intelligence, would present another side of the story. The nail knows the hammer only as an opponent a brutal enemy who lives to pound it into submission, to beat it out of sight and clench it into place. But that's the nail's view of the hammer. It's accurate except for one thing. The nail forgets that both it and the hammer are servants of the same workman. Let the nail but remember that the hammer is hailed by the workman and all resentment toward it will disappear. The carpenter decides whose head will be beaten next and what hammer shall be used in the beating. That's his sovereign right. When the nail has surrendered to the will of the workman and has gotten a little glimpse of his plans for its future, it will yield to the hammer without complaint. The file. Well, the file, however, is more painful still. Its business is to bite into the soft metal, scraping and eating away its edges until it shaped the metal to its will. The file has, in truth, no real will in the matter, but serves another master as the metal also does. It's the master and not the file that decides how much shall be eaten away, what shape the metal will take, and how long the painful filing shall continue. Let the metal accept the will of the master and it will not try to dictate when or how it shall be filed. The furnace, well, as for the furnace, it's the most painful of all. Ruthless and savage, it leaps at every combustible thing that enters it and never relaxes its fury until it's reduced all to shapeless ash. All that refuses to burn is melted into a massive, helpless matter without will of its own. When everything is melted that will melt, and all that is burned that will burn, then and not until then, the furnace calms down and rests from its destructive fury. Tozer says, how could, how could Rutherford praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. He says the answer is that he simply loved the master of the hammer. He adored the workman who wielded the file. He worshiped the Lord who heated the furnace for the everlasting blessing of his children. He had felt the hammer until its beatings no longer hurt. He had endured the file until he had come to enjoy its bitings. And he had walked with God in the furnace so long that it had become his natural habitat. Tozer goes on and says this kind of teaching really has fallen out of popularity among the church of our day that's so soft and carnal. We tend to think of Christianity as a painless system by which we can escape the penalty of past sin and attain heaven at last. The desire to be rid of every unholy thing and put on the likeness of Christ at any cost, this is often not found among us. We expect to enter the kingdom of our Father and sit around the table with sages, saints, and martyrs. Through the grace of God, we will. 
But for most of us, it could prove at first an embarrassing experience. Ours might be the silence of the untried soldier in the presence of the battle-hardened heroes who have fought the fight, won the victory, and have the scars to prove that they were present when the battle was raging at its hottest. Now, one day I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to sit down with Elijah. Uh, One day I'm going to be strolling the streets of glory and... And John, the Apostle John, who is exiled for his faith, is going to come passing me on the street, and I'm going to say, hello, John. One day, I'm going to see Peter, who history says was crucified upside down for his faith. He knew what a furnace was. Or James, who was beheaded. Or the Apostle Paul, who was beheaded. Or men like Tertullian who said it's the, it's the blood of the martyr that's the seed of the church. One day I'm going to be in the company of those that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 who did not relent from the furnace. They didn't back down from their faith even though it meant a furnace. I don't want to complain about the hammer, the file, and the furnace in my life no matter how hot it gets. Because listen, I've got the Lord's promise on this. I've got the Lord's promise. Isaiah 42 and 43, he promises, you know something? When you pass through the fire, I'll be with you. The flames won't touch you. It was the hymn writer who said, when through fiery trials, thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Have you felt the heat of a furnace lately? Whatever furnace it may be, be encouraged that there's a fourth man in the fire with you. Let's stand for prayer this morning. If you don't know Jesus, I urge you, while you have time and opportunity, turn from your sin and place all of your faith and your confidence in Christ who died on the cross to save you from your sin, who was buried, raised to life again. God didn't even spare his own son from the furnace. But the flames of God's wrath consumed our Lord in our place so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life and have a seat at the Father's table. And aren't you grateful for that? If you don't know Jesus, that invitation is extended to you today. Receive Christ as your Savior. Cry out to Him. Pray. Ask Him to save you, and He will. Be obedient to follow Him in believers' baptism and in discipleship. Lord, in the name of Jesus, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for what Rutherford called the hammer, the file, and the furnace. Something that we can identify with, Lord. Something that we see illustrated in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Doing the right thing 
following you obediently may not mean comfort in this life for us. And as we live in an increasingly hostile society toward the faith, it may mean more discomfort for us. But Lord, you use the furnace to refine our faith, to burn away the unnecessary in our lives. Painful trials, personal trials that we endure. Lord, when it feels like the flames are about to destroy us, Thank you for the promise of your word that you're the fourth man in the fire. And deliverance is promised to those who trust in you, whether in this life, but ultimately in the next. And I believe there's some men and women who are feeling the heat, Lord, for whatever reason in their life. God, may they be encouraged by your spirit this morning and your word. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.